0: One writer, Christian author, describes it as a clown desiring to play Hamlet. Another Christian author calls it theocomedy, meaning it's really quite funny in the truest sense for a fallen human being, such as myself, to try to speak about an infinitely holy God. The Psalmist himself, Psalm 106, verse 2, cries out, who can speak of the mighty works of God or declare all his praise? The anticipated answer is no one can. Paul, even the great apostle himself, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, he has said, who is adequate for these things? Anticipated answer, again, no one. But then he goes on to say, praise be to God, our adequacy, it's from God. The fact that I can say anything adequate to you this morning about our great and glorious God is an act of God himself. Because if you trust me and my wisdom, I will certainly lead you astray. But... If you trust the holy wisdom of God operating through a frail vessel like me, we can behold his glory. So, what I want to do this morning is not so much preach. What I want to do this morning is lead us in worship. That is my end game here this day. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to worship God, our Creator, by seeing the things that he says of himself in the Word. We're going to close with a quiet prayer and a time of reflection over this holy God. It's not going to be a list of things to do, except one thing, meditate upon the glory of God. If you were to write a hymn, now, don't put yourself down here. No, I, 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 Now, I know that you're not all writers, especially hymn writers. But if you were to write a hymn about the greatness of God, what would be some of the words that you would use? you might wanna take as an exercise later on after the service today. Just a list of words that comes to your mind that describe the greatness of God, words that might spur you on to prayer and to adoration and to worship the greatness of who God is. Many believe, and I'm one of them, that the last four verses of Romans 11 is a hymn. There's a hymn to God, either written directly by Paul or adapted from other sources that may have been there in the first century and put together the way that he did so as to exalt the living God. Either way, it has a certain hypnotic quality to it. And I want to take that as the metaphor for understanding these verses this morning. Paul has considered the glorious and mysterious ways of God in salvation throughout all of Romans 1 to 11. And we've gone very slowly through those books, those chapters, and worked out that history of salvation as Paul has described it. He's done so especially in verses 9, 10, and 11, where we have seen the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile taken down. And we've talked rather, rather plainly, quite frankly, of how things that divide ethnic groups are an abomination to the Lord, that Christ Jesus came to overcome those ethnic differences, not to take away our ethnicities, but to overcome any sense of their being superior to anyone else, and so to make one new people of God. Paul is so enraptured by this understanding that he, he, he brings this section to a close by breaking out in song know oh, whether he did it spontaneously or whether he composed this over weeks or who knows months we don't know but what we do know is that it is glorious bringing at least one reader this morning to tears i pray the same might be true of you so we're going to look at three choruses in these last four verses i'm going to call them that each of our points this morning if you please i want you to consider as a chorus a chorus to this great hymn, to the greatness of God. Three choruses that celebrate God and his ways in salvation. Chorus number one, which is verse 33, celebrates God and his ways in, in salvation in that they are beyond tracing. We'll, we'll explain that in just a moment. The second chorus in verses 34 and 35, that God and his ways are without comparison. And the third chorus in our morning hymn that God and his ways are worship-worthy, verse 36. So let me give you the three choruses again, and then we'll unpack them from Scripture itself. Uh, God and his ways, first, are beyond tracing, verse 33. Secondly, God and his ways are without comparison, verses 34 and 35. And our third chorus, the crescendo to Paul's hymn, found in verse 36, is that God and His ways are worship worthy? Okay, you got that. You're tuning your voice to get ready to sing these great truths about how great God is. Let's let's jump in and let's look at that first chorus. God and His ways are beyond tracing. He, uh, Romans chapter eleven, verses thirty-three. In 1953, there was an Anglican pastor. His name was J. B. Phillips. Some of you may be familiar with uh, his paraphrase of, of, the, of the scriptures. Um, not necessarily something I would recommend to you for your first uh, reading, uh, but he says some very interesting things in that paraphrase. But he's also, uh, J.B. Phillips is also very well known for a little book that he wrote entitled, Your God is Too Small. What he did was survey the land there in England uh, back in the 1950s and he saw a domesticated God. He saw a God that, that was very safe, a God that people were shrinking down, sort of like a pocket-sized God that they could take out. They could kind of rub in the belly, if you please, and ask him for three wishes. And then when they didn't need him, things were going well, they put him away. Well, J.B. Phillips wanted to counter that. Your God is too small. There are chapters in that little book uh, describing God as a resident policeman. There's a, there's a chapter in the book called God the Grand Old Man. We know some of these words that are used for God today, the man upstairs and those kinds of things. Uh, J.B. Phillips wanted to address those things. He wanted to, to the best of his ability, challenge that and lay out the fact that God is much bigger than our visions of him, if you please. He is certainly not domesticated. He is certainly not safe, but he is good, as C.S. Lewis says in his Chronicles of Narnia. The apostle would have loved that book. He would have loved the title. And then he would have sang. He would have sang this. Oh, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul doesn't want us to have a small domesticated God. He strains to get words out to capture the greatness, the goodness uh, of, of our God, just like I'm doing right now. Keep in mind now, the immediate context. You hear me talk about context all the time in my teaching and my preaching. Because yes, in general, across the board, God's depths of riches and wisdom and knowledge are extraordinary. Yes, his judgments across the board are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. Absolutely. But in this context, keep in mind now, Paul is wrapping up Romans 1 to 11, and specifically Romans 9 to 11. So he is caught up in this rapture, if you please, about how God has mysteriously worked in bringing one new people to himself. That God's way of breaking down the barriers between Jew and Gentile leads to Paul's astonishment. The fact that God would choose any, let alone to take two disparate groups of people and through the cross of Jesus Christ, bring them together as one man as he describes them, Paul does, in the book of Ephesians. So we have to keep that context in mind. Yes, it's broader than this, but also specifically Paul's talking about the amazing work of God in the history of salvation, the history of salvation that continues to unfold to this very day. Paul says the depths. It's literally a, a water word, if you can say that. Think about the, the depths of the ocean, how deep they are, how profound those depths are. It's unfathomable. And this is what Paul's saying. The, the characteristics of God, which he is about to unpack for us, have this depth to them that are that's unfathomable. It's unsearchable for us. We can't get to the bottom of the ocean, if you please. Never, Never mind to the bottom of the mind of God. But that should not discourage us. More on that in just a moment. The depths of what? The depths of his riches, the riches of his kindness. Look with me, if you would, in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, where he uses this, this language. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Look at Romans chapter 10 and verse 12, Romans 10 verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, here it comes, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So you might hear the word riches and think wealth and money and possessions, and it wouldn't be wrong to attribute all that to God, but in the context when Paul says the depths of the riches, what he's doing is talking about the blessings that are poured out on the people that he, have, he has drawn to himself, mind-boggling, the depths of riches, the depths of wisdom, the wise ways of God, though man calls it foolish, the wise ways of God hidden in Christ and in Christ's cross, of bringing sinners to salvation. Remember, we spent the entire summer talking about the wisdom of God. And we bracketed it with the teaching out of 1 Corinthians, where the folly of the cross of Christ to the unregenerate person makes no sense. But to those who are converted, who are born again, who are made new in Christ Jesus, see the cross as infinitely wise. Oh, the depths of God's riches oh, the depths of God's wisdom, oh, the depths of God's knowledge of who would become the people of God. God had a plan from before the foundations of the earth. He is working out that plan. Nothing escapes his plan. His knowledge encompasses all things, and so it is an unfathomable depth. Unfathomable depth. Paul is barely catching his breath. Oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God, You would think that he would be done. you think he'd have to go and get his breath. Well, maybe he did, but he kicks it up one more notch in the second half of verse 33, taking it higher still. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. So he breaks it down by saying the depths of riches and wisdom and knowledge. He takes a half a step back and then says unsearchable, inscrutable. He he, he uses unique words here. Uh, un- unsearchable r- really is only found here, and nowhere else. It's an incredibly unique word. Unsearchable is judgments. Now, this isn't the wrath kind of judgment. No, what Paul's talking about now, he's talking about God's decisions, his 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 undiscoverable executive decisions. Who can know the mind of God completely? The question to that is obviously no one except the spirit of God that we're told in the New Testament is the only one that can plummet the depths of God. That only makes sense. Only God would know God. Unsearchable are his executive decisions. Why this God and not that? Why that and not this? Many a great mind have wrestled with questions like that. Paul, a great mind himself, doesn't throw his hands up in the air like a fatalist instead worships, he throws his hands up to worship. This doesn't drive Paul to despair, it drives him to worship. Unsearchable judgments, inscrutable his ways. It literally means beyond tracing. In other words, you could be the best detective in all of the world, and you could set your mind to trying to trace every way of God, to arrive to the conclusions, and what would you be doing? You'd be reducing God to the ways of man. Paul is saying, I've set my mind to these things. At the end of the day, his ways are inscrutable. We can't trace it out completely. So what do we do? Do we get despairing? Do we get angry at God? Do we make demands of God that he has to tell us what he's doing? Or do we have our breath taken away, throw up our hands? Yes, to worship this inscrutable holy God. Our inability is present fully to fully comprehend the greatness of God and his plans. Remember what Isaiah 55 says, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts, says the prophet in Isaiah chapter 55, verses six to nine. But what I want you to notice, and I've emphasized this throughout this first chorus, is that Though we cannot know God fully, that not ought to lead to despair. Why? Because we can know God. It's just that we cannot know him completely. He's not completely unknowable, but what is known about God, watch this now, what is known about God has been revealed by God. How good God is, amen? How great God is. God did not have to reveal himself. Before the foundations of the earth, he was together with the Son and with the Spirit, enjoying perfect fellowship, one with another. There was no need in the Godhead. They did not need to create. They did not need to bring man and women to himself, as though there was some inadequacy in the Godhead. It was the overflow of the love, the Trinitarian love, that created It was the overflow of the Trinitarian love that drew men and women to himself. So God is not completely unknowable, but what we do know about God has been graciously revealed by God in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a chapter and verse for that so that you can hang your head on it and you can delight in these verses. Oh, my, my, my. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter two, verses nine and 10. Listen to these glorious words from Paul. 1 Corinthians two, nine and 10. As it is written, no eye is seen, no ear is heard, nor has the heart of man even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Keep going, verse 10. These things God has revealed, how has he done it? to us through the Spirit. The fact that you and I know anything about God is a gift from God, and it's been given to us through the Spirit of God, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. He's the only one, Scripture tells us, that is capable of searching the depths of God please let me take you to the Old Testament, one one other brief passage, to give you an encouragement with regard to the knowability of God. You can know God. Yes, his ways are mysterious, and yes, his ways are not our ways, but yet the prophet Jeremiah says this, speaking for God. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. What beautiful verses they are. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Powerful testimony from the prophet about the knowability of God and that God actually takes delight in being known. Rejoice this day with me, won't you, brothers and sisters, those of you who are in Christ Jesus, that you know God, that you can grow in the knowledge of God, and that God delights in revealing himself to you and to me. Those of you who are Not yet in Christ, this God awaits you. He extends himself to you. He desires to be known. He doesn't play a sinister game of hide and seek from you. Come to him today, won't you? Come and know the delight of the Lord, the delight of being known by this one who's created you and who loves you and who sent his only begotten Son for you. Come to Christ today, will you not? And explore and delight in this great God. Well, that's the first chorus. Here's the second one. And the third immediately following that. Chorus number two, God and his ways are without comparison. The second chorus, Paul brings in voices. He may have sung a cappella in the first chorus, but in the second chorus, he's gonna bring in some voices. He's gonna bring in Isaiah. He's gonna bring in Job. He's gonna create this beautiful harmony. He's gonna train our ears to hear the choreography of the Testaments, if I can say that. He's going to put his Bible together for us, and he's going to create a symphonic sound for us to hear, incorporating the voice of Isaiah and incorporating the voice of Job. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? That's from Isaiah chapter 40. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? That's from Job chapter 41. Notice what Paul does. He keeps an eye on verse 33, and he talks about, the riches, and the wisdom, and the knowledge of God, and then he comes back in 33, and and 34, and 35 to unpack those a bit for us as well. Who's known the mind of the Lord? That's the depths of his knowledge. Who's been his counselor? That's the depths of his wisdom. Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Those are the riches. Three rhetorical questions, singing loudly, lustily, dare I say, from the bottom of his heart, and the anticipated question, answer to those questions are no one. Glory to God. No one has known the mind so well. Try to imagine this. Can you imagine somebody coming to God and saying, I know your mind fully. Let me share some knowledge with you. It's laughable, isn't it? Or this question, who's been his counselor? God, y- y- you and I need to have a talk. Things have not been going the exact way I think the world should run. So, why don't you come into my office here and I will be your counselor, seeing that my wisdom is at least equal to yours? It's laughable. It's ludicrous. No wonder why one writer called it Theo comedy. And then the third rhetorical question who's given a gift that he might be repaid? Uh, God, um, I've been especially good this year, giving you extra in my offerings. Um, I'm thinking that particularly around the holidays, it might be time for you to show me a little something, something. It's silly. It's silly. We should roll our eyes. We should scoff at such a person. Job, who feared the Lord, got close to doing these things, didn't he? Remember our study in Job this past summer? And what does God do? God does not answer Job's questions. But like we said, more powerfully, God gives Job God. Not an answer to his questions, but he got God. I ask you again this morning, brothers and sisters, would you rather have God or the answers to your questions? There are certain things that are hidden with God. Deuteronomy 29, 29, right? The secret things are hidden with God. But the things that he's made known are ours and for our families to keep and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus as we bring it over into the new covenant. Listen carefully to this amazing quote that I came across this week under our second course. It's beautiful and it helps set me straight in some areas. I pray it does the same for you as well. Hasty assessments, quick decisions, hasty assessments of God's perceived injustice or unfaithfulness because of present circumstances are ill advised. What a, well, I'm not done yet, but what a word, huh? What a first sentence. In other words, if you're jumping to too many conclusions based on insufficient evidence of what's going on around us, is there a word, is this a word here for us or not? If you're jumping to hasty assessments of how God ought to be running the world because of what's going on around us. So we're being surrounded now by this coronavirus. It's now spiking here on Staten Island. Uh, Are we questioning the wisdom of God? Are we telling God the way he ought to be running his universe? Are we drawing conclusions? too quickly. Here's the quote going on. History has not yet fully traveled the course that God has plotted for it. God's not done. He is powerful and wise enough to include even the present circumstances within his just and faithful purposes. Isn't that an amazing statement? It was a breath of fresh air through this study that I'm sitting in this, this morning, because I can get caught up with the news. I can get caught up with the circumstances. I need to be reminded, as this song and as this quote reminds me, God's not done yet. His ways are not my ways. He's unsearchable. His ways are intraceable. The question is, will we believe? Will we trust? Or will we demand? that God give us our rights, that God gives us what we tell him he needs to give us, as though we knew better. That's the second chorus. God and his ways are beyond tracing. God and his ways are without comparison. How then should we respond? Chorus number three, the crescendo, verse 36, God and his ways are worship-worthy. It should come as no surprise that Paul's been building, 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 and now the third chorus, Romans 11:36, takes it to the height of heights. For from him and through him and to him are all things. He leaves nothing out. God is the beginning, He's the middle, and he's the end. Listen to how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. Everything comes from him. Everything happens through him. Everything ends up in him. That's well said. Let me walk that back and put some categories on it for you. God is the creator. Everything comes from him. God is our sustainer. Everything happens through him. God is the goal of all history. Yes, you and I are important God's unfolding plan, but you and I are not ultimate. God is the only one that is ultimate. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the glory surrounding our Trinitarian God is ultimate, which means that you and I have been created for the worship of God. We are created, as the confession says, to love God, to worship God, and to enjoy him forever. He's the creator. He's the one that brought you in. He's the sustainer. He's the one that's right now allowing your heart to beat. And he's the goal. He's the one that's at work in your life to awaken you to see the wonders of who God is, that he might prepare you for an eternity with him, an eternity that will focus on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an eternity that we will never exhaust because he is inexhaustible. God is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is our goal. Not our comfort, not our security, not our riches, not our health. God and his glory are our goals in all of life. God and his ways are beyond tracing. God and his ways are without comparison. God and his ways are worship-worthy. I told you at the beginning, there was not going to be a list of things to now go and do. No, instead, as we have been worshiping with the Lord, and I pray that you have been worshiping, I want to c- close quietly. I want to close, and rather than giving you a list of things to do, I want to close in a moment of contemplation over the one who has done things for us. A moment of contemplation of the glory in the greatness of our triune God in salvation. Yes, for the Jew. Yes, for the Greek. Yes, for you and for me. We close in quiet prayer. We close in worship. To him, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you quiet your hearts and minds with me now? Would you contemplate this closing prayer that Paul has written for us in Ephesians chapter three, a perfect finale to our study in the book of Romans one to 11. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. To him, glory. To him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.